you're a believer and you are holding on to sin, you can pray all you want to pray, but the heavens are as brass. God has said He will not hear. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in his current series in Ephesians chapter 5, titled Prayer for All Seasons. We're looking at both the priority of prayer and the power of prayer from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. So far, you've learned that the practice of prayer is meant to be a priority in every season of life, in suffering and in joy. Last time, we looked at the role prayer plays in the life of the believer in relation to unrepentant sin and sickness. Today, Tom will begin to delve into the second aspect of prayer, the power of prayer. You'll be reminded that the power of prayer comes only from the one who holds all true power, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let's join Tom now as we discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. It's clear that the subject of this paragraph, the theme of this paragraph, is prayer. In noun or verb form, the word for prayer occurs in every one of those verses that I just read to you. As we learned, this passage, this little paragraph, breaks into two sections. From verse 13 to the middle of verse 16, we learn about the priority of prayer. And then from the middle of verse 16 through verse 18, the power of prayer. Let me remind you of what we learned about the priority of prayer just very briefly. In verse 13, we learned that prayer is to be a priority for us in all the seasons and circumstances of life. Whatever we're encountering and whatever our emotional response to that may be, all of those things are to drive us to God in prayer. Either the prayer for God's help and His grace and His comfort or God's help and strength for praising Him for His blessing upon our lives. So verse 13 reminds us that in every season, in every circumstance, whatever our emotional reaction to it should be, all of life is to drive us to the throne of God. Beginning in verse 14, James traces the priority of prayer beyond those, that general principle to one very specific circumstance. 
And that is we are to pray in physical illness or physical sickness. But not just any kind of physical illness. Certainly we are to pray in all physical illness because verse 13 tells us we're to pray in all circumstances. But in verses 14 through the middle of verse 16, James is talking about one very specific circumstance related to illness. You'll remember we saw the diagnosis. The believer in this paragraph is seriously ill. And he believes that he may be seriously ill as the result of divine chastening as a result of his sin. So here is a Christian who has lived in a pattern of unrepentant sin, now finds himself seriously ill and believes that that illness may be the result of divine chastening upon his life. By the way, I can't rehearse for you if you weren't here when we looked at this passage together. I can't rehearse for you all of the arguments why I believe that's what this passage is teaching. But I encourage you to go online and listen to the message or get the CD and catch up to speed with us. We discovered that as we studied it together. So that's the diagnosis. A seriously ill believer suffering, he believes, from divine chastening as a result of unrepentant sin in his life. The prescription is very simple. If one believes he's in that situation, he is to call for the elders of the church, verse 14, and the elders of the church are to pray over him. That is to pray for his genuine repentance, that there will be true repentance in his heart, as well as they are to anoint him with oil. In both Old and New Testaments, oil and anointing with oil frequently symbolizes the consecration of people or things to the use and service of God. So here, as this believer undergoing divine chastening repents, they pray for him, and the oil is used as a symbol. That's what it is. It speaks of a symbol that this believer is now being reconsecrated to the use and service of God. Notice the prognosis in verse 15. Because of the repentant heart of the sick believer... And because of the prayer and faith of the elders, God acts. He restores the sick, He raises him up, and He forgives the sin. What you have in verses 14 and 15 is a promise of forgiveness and divine healing when, and this is key, when the illness is part of divine chastening for unrepentant sin. Now, verse 16 steps away from that specific circumstance a little bit. The first part of verse 16 applies the principle, but in less serious circumstances. We are to deal with our sin before it comes to serious chastening that may even include serious illness. We're to be quick to confess our sins to one another, that is, to the ones that we've sinned against, seeking their forgiveness. We are to keep short accounts with our sin so that we don't expose ourselves to divine chastening, to serious divine chastening that can even include serious physical illness. So that is the priority of prayer. Verse 13, prayer is to be a priority in every circumstance. And verses 14 through the middle of verse 16, prayer is to be a priority when we find ourselves under the weight of divine chastening, even to physical chastening. Now, from the middle of verse 16 
through verse 18, James explains why it is that prayer should always be a priority at all times, in spite of circumstances, in spite of our emotions. Here he's teaching us the power of prayer. Now, obviously, these verses, are in their context, are identifying the power of prayer when it comes to the issue of physical chastening for sin. But they also teach a much broader, more comprehensive perspective about the power of prayer. And perhaps you've heard sermons using these verses discussing the power of prayer, and that's legitimate, that's, that's acceptable, because they're making that broader, more comprehensive statement about prayer and its inherent power. You'll notice in verse 16, the end of verse 16, there's a timeless principle about the power of prayer. And then in verses 17 and 18, there is an Old Testament illustration of the power of prayer. Let's look first at the timeless principle regarding the power of prayer. Verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, again, let me remind you that in its context, James is applying this statement to the prayer of the elders over the sinning brother who is seriously ill. But I think it is purposefully put in the form of a universal principle because it is also true at all times and in all circumstances. This is always true. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, who is this righteous man? I think when we read that verse, we're tempted to think we're left out because that must be describing somebody great like the prophet Elijah. It must be describing some super saint. That's not true at all. Of course, the Scripture reminds us everywhere that no one is inherently righteous. Whether you are Elijah, whether you are Moses, or whether you are the least known saint, there is no one who is righteous. So the righteous man of James 5 is a person who has been declared righteous in the grace of justification. At the moment of salvation, God declares the believing, repentant sinner to be righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He credits the righteousness of Christ to the account of the believing sinner. God looks at you and treats you as if you had lived the perfectly righteous life of Jesus Christ. That's the grace of justification. But here, the righteous man must mean more than that. certainly includes that. But it must mean more than that because notice here the righteous man is compared to the sinning brother under God's discipline. So in this context, not only is the righteous man someone who's had righteousness credited to him, that is, he's a true believer in Jesus Christ, but he also is ethically or morally righteous. We could put it this way. The righteous man here is a genuine believer who is not living in unrepentant sin. You see, as believers, we all sin. So how is it that any of us can ever be called ethically or morally righteous? It's if we keep short accounts with our sin. If our sin is repented of and confessed before God, we're not living in a pattern of unrepentant sin. So the righteous man here is simply the genuine believer who has confessed his sin, has repented of it, and is not living in a pattern of unrepentant sin. 
certainly sin severs the connection that we have as believers with God. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, that is, if I hold on to it, if I cling to it, the Lord will not hear. If you're a believer and you are holding on to sin, you can pray all you want to pray, but the heavens are as brass. God has said He will not hear. Isaiah 59 makes the same point in the first two verses of that chapter. Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So sin severs that connection that you and I have with God in prayer. He will not listen. That is, of course, God hears everything. He knows everything. It means to hear in order to come to our aid. He doesn't hear. But if, on the other hand, you and I as believers in God through Jesus Christ have confessed our sin, we're maintaining a short account with Him of our sin, then He does hear. That's the righteous man of James 5. In fact, Douglas Moo puts it this way, prayer is a powerful weapon in the hands of even the humblest believer. It does not require a super saint to wield it effectively. All that has to be true is that you have confessed your sin and repented of them and you are not living in a pattern of unrepentant sin. Now, it says the prayer of the righteous man. The word for prayer here is a very specific word. It's a word that focuses specifically on requests or petitions, asking for something we desire. When the righteous man, the believing person who is, has confessed his sin, asks God for something, notice what he says. Now let me translate it for you literally. Let me give you a brief Greek lesson. In English, word order matters. If, if you want to be understood, typically you begin with a subject, and then next comes a verb, and then comes your direct object. In English, word order matters a lot. If you change the order, then you've changed the meaning of the sentence. In Greek, because of the nature of the language, because endings on the end of each word, word order doesn't matter in the sense that the direct object can be first in the sentence. doesn't matter. The verb can be first. Anything can be first. And whatever's first typically is put there for emphasis. So let me translate literally this sentence from the Greek text. Here's what it says. Powerful is the prayer of a righteous man. Or we could put it this way. Strong is the prayer of a righteous man. Or able to do much is the prayer of a righteous man. The emphasis here is on the inherent power of prayer. And notice the word effective is added. Now, the Greek word that's translated effective is a participle in the Greek text. It speaks of energy that is effective. This word effective could modify the noun, as it is in the New American Standard, the effective prayer, or it could modify the verb to pray, or is powerful, rather. 
So it could mean this, and I think this is a better translation. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful in its energy or in its effects, in its effectiveness. It has the power to get things done. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe, as you sit there this morning, that there is, by God's design and purpose, inherent within the act of praying, power to get things done, power to accomplish things, to produce effects? You know, I'm afraid if we're honest with ourselves, our actions belie what we really believe. Because if we really believed that the effective prayer or the prayer of a righteous man is powerful in its effects, then we would pray a lot more, wouldn't we? But if you doubt that principle, if you doubt that that's really true, James says, I don't want you to take my word for it. Let's look at an Old Testament illustration. And thus he gives us in verses 17 and 18. Now, if you had never read this passage, stay with me a moment. If you had never read this passage, and I ask you to identify the one Old Testament character whose life really epitomized the life of prayer, whom would you say? Probably wouldn't be Elijah. Might be Abraham. Might be Moses. I mean, after all, Moses spent 80 days on Mount Sinai, face to face, talking to God. Might be David, man of prayer and the Psalms record and pouring out his heart before the Lord. But it probably wouldn't have been Elijah. And yet James chooses Elijah, one of the fieriest and most unusual characters in the entire Old Testament. And he begins by making sure that we understand that his point is not the power of Elijah. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The Greek word translated a nature like ours literally means of the same passions. Listen, Elijah, apart from the power of God, was nothing special. He was a guy just like we are. He had the same feelings, the same experiences. He had the same weaknesses as other men. There was nothing special about Elijah that brought answers to his prayers. Instead, there was something special about his God. That's what James wants you to realize and about prayer itself because of the design of God. So James here selects one particularly fascinating episode from the life of Elijah. Look again at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth, that is, on the land of Israel, for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah was an ordinary man, an ordinary man who prayed an audacious prayer. Now, to fully appreciate this illustration, we're going to need to go back and get some background. So we're going to go back and forth. Keep your thumb or finger there in James chapter 5, but turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16. We need the historical backdrop for this illustration that James chooses. And we get it in 1 Kings 16, verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. You see, to fully appreciate this illustration that James is using, you have to understand the times. Elijah 
ministered and lived in a very difficult time. He ministered to the northern ten tribes up in the area of Samaria. And it was the worst of times. Because verse 30 says, During those 22 years, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Jeroboam, the first king of the northern ten tribes, was an awful, godless man. And yet, God says, Ahab was worse. And in fact, as he goes on, in verse 31 and following, the author of Kings accuses Ahab of four unthinkable sins, all involving the promotion of the worship of Baal. You see, from the time Israel entered the land of Canaan, they were seduced by the Canaanite religion. Why is that? It's because of what it promised. Here's what Baal worship promised. Two things. This was its attraction. Economic success in an agricultural society. Your crops would grow and prosper. And secondly, sexual satisfaction in whatever way you chose. And it was all part of the worship of the God. Those are the promises of Baal worship. And the people of Israel were seduced by that from the very beginning. And Ahab bought into this pagan idolatry with a vengeance. Notice what verse 31 says. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians. In other words, here's his first sin. Ahab married the Baal-worshipping daughter of a man whose name means Baal exists. But it didn't stop with marriage. It goes on to say at the end of verse 31 that Ahab went to serve Baal and worshipped him. It wasn't just a marriage of convenience. Ahab bought into this hook, line, and sinker. In fact, he even built a temple to Baal. Verse 32, So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. He was all out into Baal worship. And then verse 33 said, Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details, but let me give you a rough sketch of Canaanite religion because you really have to understand it to appreciate this illustration in this passage. El was the chief Canaanite god. He was the chief deity. He was the head of the pantheon of gods. His wife... El's wife and sister was Asherah. She commonly is represented as a nude prostitute. She was the goddess of love, fertility, and war or cruelty. She is known as the mother goddess. She has 70 children who make up the Canaanite pantheon. And Asherah, El's consort, Asherah's presence was symbolized, her power was symbolized by the evergreen tree. And eventually, in place of evergreens, they could set up wooden poles or groves, as they were called in the Old Testament, that would represent her. They'd be put on high hills so you could be closer to the gods to commune with them. And there was a shrine where rituals could be performed. What I want you to see is Ahab bought into Canaanite religion completely and fully. He promoted the worship of idols in Israel. Verse 34 tells us just how bad the ethical living of the people was. There was a total disregard for the Word of God. In his days, that in Ahab's days, 
Hael the Bethlehite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram his firstborn. He set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. In other words, there was absolutely no reference to the word of God whatsoever. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, Joshua had said, Cursed be anyone who builds or tries to rebuild Jericho. Hael comes along in his arrogant pride and decides that that's exactly what he's going to do. He absolutely ignored the Word of God. That was the climate of the times. The name of Yahweh was forgotten, and the people of Israel instead worshipped Baal. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, Prayer for All Seasons. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.